It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a machine, listen to yourself, the world, but there's no need something to your own head. Speed it up and I've seen got no seats. The ladder from the platter with the fear fight down. I fire in the fire, but the system doesn't gang. The government will hire in the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, but you're getting down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the hour of doom. And Bloom! Hey friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a tempest of temerity in a troubling world. I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand post videos and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. And I'm Amy Alton, also known as Nurse Amy. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And together we are the dynamic duo, the prodigious pair, the spectacular spouses, the <laughs> masters of disaster. <laughs> <laughs> and we're here to help you keep it together even if everything else falls apart. That's right. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident with a cantankerous catfish? Well, our attorney says, don't call me. Call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy and listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available, please. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the modern medicine, the miracle of modern medicine. Yes. Wow. I'll tell you, that's great for normal times. But, of course, well, what happens in a disaster when the hospital isn't around? And, gosh, the zombies aren't even covering their mouths when they cough. Something's <laughs> got to happen here. Somebody has got to be the end of the line when it comes to keeping their family healthy in times of trouble. And that someone might just be you. So show the world that you've got more sense than a case of crackers and get some training and education while you're at it, by the way. How about some supplies? How about a quality medical kit to go along with all that knowledge? And what better place to get it than the lovely Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated Never equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. They'll help you deal with medical issues you'll face in any disaster, and they're designed by an honest-to-gosh physician, medical doctor, absolutely, I'll show you my license, and hers truly, truly. the awesomest advanced nurse practitioner, 
That's registered nurse practitioner. I know it's a mouthful. It is a mouthful. I'm sorry. But you know what? That's <laughs> a lot of training you have to go through. So you're worth it. It's worth it to have a few Extra initials <laughs> after your name. That's right. Thank Advanced you. registered nurse practitioner. Compare our kits for contents, quality, and cost with anybody else's stuff. You'll agree our kits are the ones that you should have in your medical storage. Our kits are approved, by the way, for your health and flexible savings accounts, too. We'll give you whatever paperwork you need to make sure that you get it reimbursed or whatever it is that you need to have done. Read our testimonials page, by the way, at store.doomandbloom.net. If you want to know who you're dealing with, see what people have to say about our medical kits and our service we aim to please. Hey, we learned as much from you as you do from us, so why don't you connect with that old geezer and that beautiful goddess... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> You're so sweet. I am. And here's that goddess to tell you how. Yes, contact us anytime at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Find us on Facebook at our group, Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones, and Nurse Amy. Like and follow, subscribe, whatever the heck they want you to do in Facebook these days. At Doom and Bloom page, you can also follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show. And don't forget our YouTube channel at DR Bones Nurse Amy. I'm actually going to put up another video today. We're recording this on July 20th, 2018, and it's on crush injuries. Oh, that's right. It'll be yes. very interesting well, for let's... folks to see it as well as hear it. That's right. Well, we'll talk a little bit about that. You know, one of the most beautiful and picturesque regions of the country is the Pacific Northwest. Oh, That's yes. Oregon and Oregon. Oregon. And Washington. I hope it's not Washington. No, I don't <laughs> think so. <laughs> but in any case, you got to say it right. Uh, I have to say that there's a shadow cast on these regions, however, because of the risk of natural disaster in the form of earthquakes and, and even tsunamis. tsunamis. Right, yes. right, exactly. From earthquakes elsewhere. That's right. In populated areas, the number of casualties from these events, my gosh, they can be pretty terrible, especially if modern medical facilities are rendered inoperative. Uh, Our good friend Dave Duffy of Self-Reliance Magazine, actually his kids are in charge of that nowadays. He's sort of the... uh, Grandpappy. Yes. He's the grandpappy. Chairman Emeritus, editor emeritus (laughs) of uh, Self-Reliance Magazine, asked us to comment on the issues that may occur as a re- medical issues that may occur as a result of an earthquake. And so we want to talk about that a little bit today. And crush injuries is actually one of the things I'm going to mention. Excellent. You know, even in normal times, there are lots of areas in this country, and I'm not even just talking about the Pacific Northwest, where the ambulance is not just around the corner. We drove, I remember, from Portland to the coast, I think Astor- right. Astoria, and we encountered a number of air points uh, that it's pretty clear that medical help is not going to be readily at hand. A lot of areas where they did logging and stuff like that. And sure enough, there were a lot of industrial accidents that can occur in lumberjacking. And so it is pretty amazing. It's important to have medical kits with you just about any time if you're driving in these kinds of areas. Well, I remember a, a few sections of the coastal drive where there was no cell phone. There were big, giant signs warning of tsunamis. Remember? Yes, yes. Warning, tsunami area. Warning, tsunami area, which was not very comforting when we were pretty much alone on the road. Right. There was it a- was not a weekend, so there just there wasn't a soul to be seen anywhere. And no cell phone service. 
So if something terrible would have happened, it, it wouldn't have been the end of society or an apocalyptic worldwide event. It would the, have the, been a personal the apoc- end of you apocalyptic <laughs> event yes. because. If we were dying slowly, let's say from internal bleeding or, or like you're going to mention, a, a crush injury, or we're sort of trapped on top of some area because of water from a tsunami, I mean, we're just out of luck. You're just out, absolutely out of luck. So it doesn't have to be that you're in the middle of nowhere. You just may not have a cell phone tower near you. That's absolutely true. I, I want to tell you a little bit about a woman that actually drove off the Pacific Coast Highway off a cliff 200 feet down what? and wound up actually surviving that fall. It was pretty amazing. 200 it, it, not feet in, and survived. Not in the Pacific Northwest, actually more in Southern California. But she was at a part of the road where there was, I guess, a curve and there was no, shol- no shoulder on the road here. Oh, wow. And... She just went right over. Oh, my gosh. And and the car, if you take a look at the car, you could not imagine that somebody could actually have survived it. But she did. Okay. Although she was terribly injured. She had four broken ribs, both collarbones fractured. Both. Um, internal injuries. Oh, gosh, all sorts of terrible well, stuff. Obviously, she wasn't hemorrhaging right. internally. But you know what? She actually kept her head together. Her composure. You know, she was in the water. Her car landed in the water. Maybe that's why, even though the car looked terribly damaged that she actually it maybe that's why water. she maybe that's why she survived okay but she actually was smart enough to have a multi-tool in there allowed her to break out the windows even though she couldn't open the door okay and she was able to climb out of there okay and and get to the beach now the problem is, is there's no shoulder there's on the road cliff. there it's a curve and so nobody can actually see straight down to the bottom of right, the cliff because what you're saying is there's a a, a, a cliff and she can't climb up it, and right. nobody's going to take the time to stop right. might in the be, middle of a road. Right, might be scenic, but if there's no shoulder on the road, if there's no, no shoulder no on the road, off. and it's a curve, you know people are not going to stop. And so, she, well, wait a second. You, some portions of those roads have pull-offs. Yes, for the scenic views. If there is not one of them in that spot, no car can stop because it's dangerous. There's no area for them to even. Attempt to stop. Right. The only way that you could probably see is if you were a passenger, you were looking out your window, looking straight down, you would probably and be able to then, see the bottom. Maybe not. And so pretty crazy stuff. She actually went so she's three on the days. Beach. Right. She's basically not moving much for about three days. She gets really dehydrated. She finally decides she's got to pull herself up. She climbs onto some rocks. And obviously not 200 feet worth, feet worth of rocks. Uh-huh. But and she actually finds the drip, drip, drip of some water. And lo and behold, the water is actually fresh water. Okay, so what happened is water was coming off of the ground, or something, right, yeah. the ground above Groundwater, right. and being filtered right. and from rain and, so she and could dripping drink off of... Right. Wow. The funny thing is that she said that she actually had a gallon of water in the car, but that she couldn't reach it. Oh. You know... She couldn't get to it. Between her broken ribs and her two broken collarbones, I'm surprised this woman could have moved at all. Think about that. Well, she tried to climb the rocks, and she tried to scream as best she can up there. Because she could she could hear cars or maybe even see, oh, no. see some cars, the edges of some cars as they drove by, but none of them actually stopped or actually probably heard it. I mean, unless you were 
a passenger physically looking out your window and looking down, <coughs> then you probably wouldn't have seen her. So what happened was is that she actually spent a week like this. Oh, my goodness. Nobody knowing what happened to her. And she's stuck down there, apparently not able to walk very far, but uh, just just enough so that she would be able to get up, drink some water, and then go and, I guess, fall asleep uh, on the rocks. Now, a, amazingly, there was a woman that was dri- Apparently, what happened was there, somebody was driving by. A woman actually had her head out the window, looked down at, to look down at the rocks, and she saw this car that was totally demolished. And so she freaked out. She said, wow, oh my God, what the heck is going on? They drove down a little way, and they made their way down a trail and walked all the way over to where she was. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I, I that don't That is know. a miracle. The, I, I assume that because of her injuries, this woman didn't have the stamina to be able to go Walk look around, you know, discover it. And so they were able to get help to her finally, and she's in the hospital right now but apparently going to do just fine. A miracle. That's it, all I can say. It is pretty Absolutely amazing. Absolutely a miracle. But she was, look at what she had. She had her multi-tool. She had a gallon of water in, in the car. She didn't, didn't ha- have the ability to get to it, but she was able to find water, and she was able to live for a week, even though she had all these terrible injuries. Of course, being a young woman, she was in her 20s, that would certainly go in her favor. I mean, if I fell over the cliff that way... I would probably you probably find me about fifty different pieces, but it's pretty amazing. Not necessarily. You're tough. I'm a tough old <laughs> bird. You're not going that easily. I'm old, but I'm not so frail. My question is, right? who told her to have a multi tool? Because most young people don't even think about it. I know my youngest loves her Swiss Army knife. Uh-huh. In fact, she yep, you gave it to her. Carried it, yeah, she had carried it on a plane. Of course, TSA took it from her, and she was highly, highly upset about this. And so I had to ship her another one as soon as possible. But she doesn't go anywhere without that. And it's one of those those pretty decent ones with like forty tools on it. <laughs> I know. She I uses it. It's it like all three, the time. Three inches wide. Yeah. She loves it. Well, I'm glad to hear that. So what I'm saying is probably her father or her mother had suggested she had one. Maybe she grew up in a military family or maybe she had some brothers who were Boy Scouts or maybe her father was an Eagle Scout. Uh, Somebody had an influence on her to actually talk about it. Yeah, to talk about it and say, hey, you know, Things can happen. I'm not trying to scare you, but you should carry a few things in your car in case you get stuck, especially being being alone. Obviously, she was driving alone. And thank goodness whoever that influence was, was a good one. It's, or maybe she just found this out on her own and thought, you know what? I'm going to put my put a car kit together for myself. Pretty amazing stuff. But good for her. Well... Back to what I was saying. I, I digress. You, Excuse me. No, I digressed oh, for I, you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the digressor. You're the digressee. <laughs> so anyhow, think about how many casualties there would be if there was a earthquake. If there was all over the seismic zone, there might be buildings that collapse and all sorts of folks that need help. And of course medical personnel would probably be overwhelmed. I mean, you don't know if the ambulance is going to be heading in your direction or where they think there are more people that need help. 
Or, of course, if you lived in a remote homestead, it might be too far away from the nearest health facility to make the difference between life and death. You know that FEMA estimates that at least one-third of public safety workers are not going to report for duty in disasters like this because not only... uh, they cite a failure of infrastructure, but they also admit right. Wait a that second. Let's more go, likely, let's go back to the infrastructure. The the same issues that occur for folks not being able to get help from the hospital or from the ambulances or from the police will be the same issues that prevent the hospital staff, the ambulances, the firefighters, and the police to actually get to their own jobs. Yes, that's true. So it's it's the same thing's going to affect everybody. The people who are at their jobs may not be able to get to you, and the people who haven't made it to work but who desperately do want to get to work so they can help others might not be a- even able to get to work. So I think that does, you know, have a significant effect, uh, perhaps. Effect, but also... In the next point. They, even FEMA admits that more likely it would be a desire to protect their immediate families. Which I completely understand, especially if you have little kids, you know, or, or one of your family members has or health issues themselves. Or, elderly, right. or maybe sure. they got hurt during the disaster. Right. And this person needs to stay home because no one else is coming. And they have to tend to not only their own family members, but their, their inclination is going to be able be to walk outside and find others who might need their assistance. Absolutely. That's going to be human nature is I, I not only need to help my family, maybe my family's okay, but let me go outside and check on, you know, the the lady across the street who lost her husband a few years ago or or the man who lives down the street who's divorced and alone or the young family with the, the little infants the, with the mom who's, 23 years old and, you know, scared to death. So the inclination is going to be to move out of their house, move around the neighborhood. So, you know, because they're on site. Right. You know, rather than going to work at that exact moment, they're on site to immediately provide help for those around them. Right. And then if they have established that their local area right there, whatever they consider their area, is okay, then they're going to attempt to go to work. Right. But that could be too late that for could a be, number of it people. It could be a while before that happens. And maybe there are some injured that he he or she needs to gather up into a triage area and, and maybe into their own home, a, a local area where, you know, they can kind of set up a almost like a mass unit. So I, I can understand a lot of people not reporting to work. They're maybe helping their little areas where they are. That's true. You know, I think the main thing to get out of this is that the outcome of an emergency in a disaster or if you live in a remote setting may wind up being dependent on you, on the skill and ingenuity that you yourself can bring to the situation. Because maybe you don't have a neighbor that I was just talking about who's a paramedic or a firefighter or a police officer or a nurse or a doctor or PA and, you know, a nurse practitioner. You don't have someone like that as a neighbor who is going around trying to triage people, and and maybe it falls on you. That's true. That's the thing. So, coupled with some medical supplies, you gotta imagine that if you have to get a little training, if you read a little bit, you might be able to 
possibly manage and maybe learn how to prevent some injuries and illness that that's are right. part and parcel of major catastrophes. For sure. And that's sad because most people have pretty much just a few Band-Aids and some ibuprofen in their medicine cabinet, don't really have a medical kit like something that you put together that can deal with bleeding, deal with orthopedic injuries, that really can deal with a lot of the things that happen in a disaster. The, the type of wounds that you can imagine incurred uh, in an earthquake would be like hemorrhaging, sprains and fractures, orthopedic injuries, crush injuries, burns, things like that. So let's talk about a few of these. Of course, the bleeding wound is the one that is the sexiest. So let's yeah. talk about that. Okay. <laughs> if that's what you and want people to People always it. want me to talk about bleeding wounds. Yes. Right. So... Anyhow, the most life-threatening, indeed, of traumatic injuries uh, is an actively bleeding wound, right? Especially if it's from an artery. You may have heard of the golden hour, and that states that a person's chance for survival after a major injury really decreases if it's not treated within the first hour. With hemorrhagic wounds, of course, it might better be called the platinum five minutes because if you have a truly a, an arterial bleed and from any blood vessel of any size, you don't treat it within a few minutes, you could be beyond help in three to five minutes, really. That's what they say. Arterial bleeds, of course, appear different from venous bleeds, if you didn't know that. Arterial bleeds are bright red in color, and that's because of a high oxygen content that they have. Venous blood is sort of a dark red, almost blackish. And if a major artery is disrupted, of course, there could be a vein right near it that's also disrupted. You may get both. Uh, in an arterial bleed, the blood flow has a pulsating quality to it, and in a venous bleed, well, it's sort of a steady, steady flow. Of course, minor bleeding from scrapes and stuff like that, that can be treated with some mild pressure and a bandage. Some people might use uh, liquid skin or super glue, a styptic pencil, even cayenne pepper powder, by the way, if it's over 35,000 Scoville units of heat, will actually stop mild maybe even moderate bleeding if you pour it into a wound. It hurts like a son of a gun, by the way. Uh, it's important to expose the wound so it's clear exactly where the bleeding is coming from. Sometimes there may be more than one wound in a penetrating wound. There might be an entry and an exit wound, which, by the way, aren't always directly opposite from each other. Uh, in the case of crush injuries, bleeding is going to present differently. It's going to present as severe bruising, maybe an accumulation of blood under the skin called uh, a hematoma, and Pressure may help slow the bleeding, but the truth of the matter is, is that uh, it is not as effective as when you have an open wound where you can actually see where the bleeding is happening and you can actually pack dressings in and apply really good pressure exactly where the bleeding is happening. So that's the deal. Of course, pressure is not, not a bad thing, but not as good as, let's say, an open wound in an extremity. There is also something called compartment syndrome. Compartment syndrome, it's important to know that nerves and muscles are oftentimes covered by walls of fascia. Fascia is a sort of a tough connective tissue, and it separates, for example, your, the muscles of your upper leg into a number of different compartments. Now, when these compartments are traumatized when, when the muscles and the tissues are deprived of blood, let's say, for too long after a crush injury or the trauma itself has occurred, there's a chance that nerves will actually become damaged and muscle tissue may not survive. They may actually die as a result. And this, by the way, compartment syndrome can occur in any part of the body that's crushed 
and trapped between two objects or one object in the ground for too long. So this is something that is definitely an issue, as you can imagine, in earthquakes, and it can be very serious. Now, the first sign of compartment syndrome is often extreme pain from the crush injury itself, and then a sensation of pins and needles as the nerve damage begins to manifest itself. The limb develops swelling, appears sort of shiny, and eventually loses function. Once paralysis is set in, of course, it might be difficult to even feel a pulse at or beyond the level of the injury, and these cases often require surgery to release pressure on the involved nerves. Crush injuries are especially problematic when they happen, but also when you're actually treating them, when you're actually releasing the person from the actual crush injury, well, or the crushing weight, well, you actually wind up having some major issues. I mean, if it's more than, let's say if you you just have your big toe crushed, it might not be a big deal, but if you have a significant injury of, let's say, an entire extremity, a crush of an entire extremity or the abdomen, things like that, releasing a person who's been under a crushing weight for a significant period of time, let's say more than 15 minutes, causes a condition called reperfusion syndrome, reperfusion syndrome. And what happens here is that dying muscles and organs release toxins that not only cause local effects like paralysis or of the effective area, affected area or dysfunction of an organ that's been damaged, but also overwhelms the kidney's ability to eliminate those toxins. And by overwhelming the kidney that way, it could actually lead to kidney failure. And these toxins include some really serious things like potassium. You have potassium in your cells. If enough of them are crushed and all of this potassium goes out into your system, well, if it's released in large quantities throughout the body, well, it can cause a life-threatening irregular heart rhythm or actually kill you. Now, there are five Ps to compartment syndrome. And P number one, <laughs> P is, the first P is pain and lots of it at first. Then after that becomes numb. Uh, that's called paresthesia. Paresthesia are strange sensations like numbness, <coughs> tingling, or pins and needles. P is for pale, the third P. Uh, pale, ashen skin is the way the person looks, a person going to shock. Pulse, a lack of it beyond the level of the injury, or a rapid irregular heartbeat if it's something that uh, those toxins are getting into the system already. And then the fifth P is paralysis due to nerve damage. Now, it's a good idea to keep a crushed extremity below the level of the heart to aid blood flow. If the affected area has been under crushing pressure for just a short period of time, lift the weight off them. But longer than that, and if, if there is a chance that emergency medical personnel will get there, let them make the decision. Because what you have to do to prevent reperfusion syndrome and major issues is to have IV hydration, oxygen, and certain medicines that will help prevent those toxins from staying in the body before removing the weight. And that's the thing. Also, people uh, recommend placing a tourniquet on before you remove the crushing weight. And that may help uh, prevent toxins from flooding the rest of the body. So once at the hospital, then you have surgical things that may have to be done. If there's a true compartment syndrome, you have that really swollen leg and shiny, well, that fascia, remember those walls of tough connective tissue that are holding compartments of muscle together, 
may actually have to be cut. You may have to make an incision in that fascia to release the pressure in the compartment. And that is pretty much a, uh, an incision you make directly over the area of most pressure. And it can't be a little incision. It has to be usually pretty big. Doesn't get easier from here. Uh, you got to have intensive care personnel that are going to have to monitor the victim for kidney failure and gosh, a host of other issues. And so for crush injuries, well, other than the stabilization, not too much you can do for them in an earthquake without modern medical and surgical care. And I've had a number of paramedics when I wrote the article on this uh, let me know that that indeed is the case, that it is a complex issue. So this is something that is very, very important to know. Now, of course, there are lots of other things that can happen. When we're talking about bleeding, of course, you want to stop the hemorrhage quickly. That's your first priority. And this can usually be achieved by simply applying firm pressure with your hand if it's an open wound, uh, plus preferably a barrier such as a bandage, gloves, of course, and an additional level of protection for both you and the victim. Uh, can so always consider nitrile gloves instead of latex because the, uh, there's just a big epidemic of latex allergies in the last decade, and so it's important to know that. Uh, if a bleeding wound is in an extremity elevated above the level of the heart, this action might make it more difficult for the heart to pump blood out of the body. That's a little controversial, but I believe in it. Uh, some advocate using pressure points, which map out areas where major blood vessels run close to the skin on the way to an open wound, and maybe applying firm pressure to these points might decrease bleeding where a case in point is the artery behind the knee. Firm pressure here may decrease bleeding from a wound in the lower leg. Well, anyhow, within a very short time, it's going to be pretty clear whether pressure alone is going to stop the bleeding. In the case of arterial bleeding, the bandages probably will soak through pretty quickly. Don't remove them. Pack additional ones on top of it. And this is a point where you should reach for that tourniquet in your kit. If you don't have one, you should improvise by using a belt or a bandana with a stick, anything to apply pressure to that area. Really, really tight pressure. As a matter of fact, so tight that it hurts. If it doesn't hurt, you're not putting it on tight enough. Although there's been a lot of resistance to the use of tourniquets in the past, boy, our experience in Iraq and Afghanistan have really shown that there are situations where bleeding is just so obviously heavy, you got to use a tourniquet as the first thing. First thing, get the tourniquet out, use it. A tourniquet, if you place it properly for two hours or less, rarely causes the loss of a limb. Indeed, there are some orthopedic surgeries, such as knee replacements. Uh, your dad had knee replacements. Yes. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, he had two of them. Uh, two knee replacements. That's yes, right. Yes, a year apart. Right. And they often use tourniquets to hold down the blood loss from the knee, uh, that kind of surgery and many other orthopedic surgeries. Now, there's another useful item for stubborn bleeding. You have to have it in your medical kit. That's the hemostatic agent. Hemostasis means the control of bleeding. These products are made of different materials. They work in different ways to stop bleeding quickly as long as you add pressure, usually for at least three minutes. One popular dressing is Cellox, made of a natural product processed from shrimp shells. You can use that, by the way, if you are allergic to seafood. That is a tongue twister, yes, honey. Shrimp shells. Shrimp shells. Shrimp, shrimp shells. shells. Shrimp shells. <laughs> Uh, another one is Quick Clot, actually <clears throat> even more popular, made of a material found in red clay. And of the, of the two, I think that Celox has more versatility. It can stop bleeding in people on blood thinners. And if you wet a Celox dressing, uh, it actually forms a gel that is a good cover for burns. Uh, both of these products, however, are really good. They come in gauze dressings, and uh, 
uh, usually pretty easy to handle in that fashion. Now, once you've placed your tourniquet and stopped the bleeding with a hemostatic agent, you might put a compression dressing on top of it, such as the emergency bandage. That's a U.S. version of the Israeli battle dressing, and that allows continued pressure on the wound without you necessarily having to press on it the whole time. Because uh, You have to remember blood loss can lead to shock, so it's important to place the victim in the shock position. That means uh, laying flat with legs elevated about 12 inches above the level of the heart. Heat loss is also a common issue, so cover your patient with a mylar or other blanket. Keep them warm. That's really important. If you got to transport them, especially over long distances on rough terrain, consider placing a splint or otherwise immobilizing the wound. These wounds can easily start bleeding again if you get a lot of jostling, so that's really, really important. Other things that you could expect, orthopedic injuries, we mentioned that, and uh, this can include fractures, sprains, and strains, things like that. Uh, some people don't know the difference between a sprain and a strain. Well, it all goes down to anatomy. Let's talk about that. A ligament is a fibrous band of tissue that connects one bone to another. Now, tendon is fibrous tissue that connects muscle to bone. Now, when a ligament is damaged, it's, cause, call, it's called a sprain. When a tendon or a muscle is damaged, it's called a strain. Now, when the bone itself is broken, of course, it's called a fracture. Everybody knows that. It's important to realize that there is a simple way to remember how to deal with sprains and strains, and that's by remember the word, remembering the word rice. Rice stands for R, rest, I, ice, C, compression, E, elevation. You might even put an S at the end of that for stabilization. You've got to rest the injury. You have to avoid further injury by resting the injured joint. You may not have a choice, but if you can stop whatever actions led to the injury, it'll probably give you the best chance for recovery, right? That makes sense. So rest is R in rice. The I in rice is ice. Cold therapy decreases not only swelling, but also makes it hurt less. The earlier you apply it, the more effect it's going to have in speeding up the healing process. Uh, so you should always have some of those shake and break cold packs in your in your backpack if you're going to be out in the backcountry. That's very, very important. And you want to apply these several times a day for 20 to 30 minutes at a time. Uh, and you want to do that for about the first 24 hours or maybe 48 hours at most. Uh, it's not very effective after that. This is, by the way, followed each time. Each time you put an ice pack on and you <clears throat> apply some compression to the area. And that's the C in rice. C is for compression. And so you need a compression bandage. A compression bandage is useful to decrease swelling, should be placed after each cold therapy. An ACE wrap will do, or you know, Israeli battle dressing, any of these things will do. ACE wraps are much less expensive, obviously. You start below the joint, work your way up above it. And remember that the wrap should be tight, but not uncomfortably so. And you can tell if it's too tight by, notice, by your victim noticing tingling, increased, increased pain, or, numb, or total numbness, that'll tell you the wrap's too tight, should, you should loosen it. Also, it can affect the circulation. You may notice the fingertips or the toes becoming sort of whitish or even blue. So these are signs that you need to make that a little bit looser. The E in rice stands for elevation. You want to elevate the sprain above the level of the heart, and that's going to prevent swelling at the site of the injury. Swelling is also known as edema, E-D-E-M-A, and it's caused by fluid that pools where the inflammation is and, by the way, where gravity will allow it to pool. By elevating the leg, you 
allow the fluid to sort of process itself back into your circulation and aids the healing process, or, or at least doesn't impede it. And if you add an S to, to rice, you have rice's stabilization. S for stabilization means that mobilizing the injury is going to prevent further damage. I mentioned that jostling around while you're transporting somebody with an injury like this it may be difficult, may cause further injury. It works with, it's true for bleeding wounds, and it's certainly true also for orthopedic injuries as well. So you can get a lot of different splints. There are some expensive splints that are inflatable. They're really nice, however, uh, if you can afford those. The SAM splint is a, also known as the structural aluminum <laughs> structural aluminum malleable aluminum. splint. <laughs> named after a guy named Sam, by the way, who invented it. So his ego is causing me to have a little tongue twister He had to there. work his way around his yeah, name, honey. That's right. And anyhow, you could also, of course, improvise with sticks and cloth, uh, pillows and duct tape, all sorts of different ways that you can splint or stabilize an injury. Remember that uh, ice is probably better in the first day or so. After that, maybe heat might be helpful to just to get blood flowing to the area, maybe decrease stiffness. So that's something that's very important. Let's talk a little bit about fractures, a way to determine, uh, we've talked I think a couple of weeks ago or maybe three weeks ago about how to determine a, frame, a sprain versus a fracture. We're not going to talk about that today, but I do want to talk a little bit about fractures in that a person that has a fracture is going to have to have some way to straighten out a bone that is not not straight, not, not intact. If a bone is not intact, it's bad enough if it's just not connected but still straight. But in some cases, it's not straight, and you actually have to reduce the actual deformity. That you have to do relatively quickly because <clears throat> swelling makes it difficult every moment, every minute or so. It's a little more difficult to actually to move reduce it an injury and straighten a bone out. You know, it's, let's just move back to that word, reduce. That reducing a fracture sounds like you're making something smaller. Because that's the word that we typically use for, let's say, money or amounts of things, for right. volumes of things. But it has a different meaning, so I just wanted you to spend a second right. explaining what the word reduce actually means in this instance. Well, it basically they means simply to decrease the level of lack of straightness of the bone. So the deformity of the bone itself is reduced to where it is, where it began Straight, when exactly. it was intact. And so that is one so thing So you're that's reducing very the level of deformity. That's exactly right. Right. It's just it's it's a funny word when you hear we're going to reduce your your fracture. <laughs> now the thing is What? If, if yes, you, I would have liked to have less fracture. Yeah. The sad <laughs> the sad thing is that if you hear that they're going to do that, it's probably going to hurt a lot because most of the time this is so painful yes. that they do it under general anesthesia in normal times. But uh, it's Except very the important. shoulder. A lot of times they'll they will just pop the shoulder in the emergency room. But that's not a broken shoulder. That's, that's true. I'm sorry. You're right. You're shoulder. absolutely right. We'll talk about that in, in a future show. You're absolutely show. right. But you're absolutely right. But that, it is another instance where they use that word reduce. That's right. <laughs> a- absolutely right. And uh, these are these are things that are very <clears throat> important because a limb or a bone that is not straightened out and not back in the position it's it was. It's overlapping or... Right. or 
if you snap something, like two sticks, snap them by pulling downward on both sides, then the bone fragments on the ends, the shards would be both sticking up at an angle, right. up, that's called possibly a, out of the skin. Right, that's called a green stick fracture, and that's something that also needs to be reduced. So you have to straighten things out, and you have to have bone touching bone because exactly. that's how new bone will form. Exactly. If not, if you don't have the two ends touching each other in close alignment, then what happens is you form not bone tissue as much as scar tissue. And the scar tissue is never as solid as new bone. Well, let's think about, <clears throat> you know, a lot of people repair things around their houses. Um, a, a teacup handle comes off the teacup. Uh, you're not just going to put that handle in any spot on the teacup. You're going to put it where it was before. Exactly. Because that area is roughened and it's going to attach more. Of course, you're going to have to use super glue or Gorilla glue on it. But it's the same thing with the bones. They're going to heal when you touch the ends that were separated together. That's where the healing will occur uh, best and give you the best chance of actually not having a shorter limb than you had before, which is a terrible side effect when things aren't put together properly. Exactly. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about what you would do if you had to actually place a cast. You actually can buy cast, cast materials, and, and there's nothing what, magic about it. They're not expensive either. They're not terribly expensive. That's true. I think they're around 20 bucks. Okay, there you go. For a cast so kit. So you may want to have one or two. If you're yeah. the medic in a survival group, you're certainly going to want to have a couple of these in your in your field hospital, certainly. Uh, and you have to realize there are just some circumstances where a splint is just not going to be enough to ensure good healing. You really need that area immobilized, maybe for weeks, maybe a couple of months, even. And well, so you it may does. It need depends to... on what bone is broken. It depends on the nutritional intake and, unfortunately, the age of, of the, the person. Old <laughs> person. Yes. The younger heal faster than the, the older. older. That's so sad and so I know. true. But, you know, it is what it is. There are lots of different casting materials. Uh, casting material using plaster of Paris is popular, as uh, the old the way they've done it uh, since time immemorial. Yeah. Fiberglass is now very useful. <clears throat> it's easy to, to obtain, lasts a long time. Uh, I'd say plaster is more pliable. It hardens a little slower, so it gives you more time to apply in the cast. And also, in case you make a mistake, you can kind of fix it. The fiberglass hardens much faster. Right. But it is lighter, and it's a lot less messy to use. So that's a positive. Pros and with cons. Pros and cons there. Now, both are very useful addition to your medical supplies. There's also um, these inflatable casts, too, that are, are oh, expensive. Yeah. But they also exist, and they're becoming more popular, of course, in Some of modern them times. aren't too bad. Obviously, the higher quality air casts are going to be much more expensive than say a low a low cost one that's like clear plastic and probably super super thin material. Right. So there are different are qualities more... for these inflatable air casts. Right. Well the, the thinner ones or thinner made ones would be sort of air splints maybe yes. but not air casts. Exactly. Well anyhow, each fracture is casted somewhat differently and with various materials, but the va basic principles are the same. When you place a cast you first start with a liner of cotton that's known as a stockinette. These things come in sort of uh, tube, 
fashioned or, or in rolls, and they're essentially like gloves, except they don't have right. fingers. And so you just pull it through and then just cut I it. I think a at tube, a, a, a tube is probably the best way. Best to way describe to describe it, it yeah. right? So that's the stockinette. The stockinette, and it's you a measure cotton it. material, right? But it's stretchy, right? It's kind of stretchy, like an ace material, exactly. a little bit. Exactly. The, it, so you measure the co- the stockinette, cut about several inches longer than the, what the intended cast is going to be. And you place it without wrinkling it over the area that you're going to cast, like you would put on a sock. Then you're going to need rolls of padding to form a barrier between the skin and the cast. Remember, the cast is hard; you don't want it directly against the skin. You advance. You start. These come in rolls, and you basically start rolling, unrolling it around the, let's say, an arm that's broken, <clears throat> and you advance one half of the thickness of the roll each turn as you go from below the fracture towards the torso. The padding should be at least two or three layers thick and should extend an inch or two beyond where you are expecting the cast to end. So you want a little bit more beyond, uh, below and beyond the cast area. Now, extra padding should be applied between fingers, let's say, or over any bony prominence. If you have an ankle, for example, you want to have more padding over the ankle bone, the actual protrusion of the ankle bone. Now, at this point, you have some rolls of plaster of Paris or fiberglass. You immerse it in cool water for about 20 seconds or so. Then you squeeze it to remove excess water. By the way... Keep the end of the roll between your fingers or it's going to stick to the rest. It's going to be difficult to find. You're going to wind up spending valuable time trying to find the end of the actual cast material. Uh, So then what you're going to do is begin to slowly wrap the casting material around the area of the fracture. You smooth it out as you go along. So you want it to be nice and smooth. Uh, Advance about one half of the thickness of the roll each turn as you go from below the fracture towards the torso and just don't make it tight. Don't make it too tight. You will want maybe three layers of casting material on the area, more in places where there's a bony prominence on like the ankle, the wrist, that, that area. And you want to roll the ends. Once you've done that, you want to roll the ends of the stockinette and the padding. Remember, I, those go a little further than the length of the cast. Then you roll them back over the cast before the last layer is applied. And by applying the last layer, then you sort of have everything in one nice, neat little package. Now, I have to say that there are different widths and lengths of stockinettes, padding, casting rolls, and they're all appropriate to the particular fracture. It's a little bit more than we really can go into in this show. Well, that's why these kits are actually pretty good. And by the way, the stockinette... Exact material is a cotton knit. Ah, That's yeah. why you get the and little fe- bit of stretchiness. Right. It feels to me very like a very soft. thin, yeah, a soft, thin T-shirt material yep. almost is what it seems to me. So anyhow, you have to always remember that you have uh, when you bathe, you have to place a, a plastic wrap over the cast. Uh, that's going to be important because uh, a wet cast is a smelly cast. Oh. And if, for somebody who's got to live with it for <laughs> about eight weeks or six, eight weeks or more, well, obviously, you don't want a smelly cast. My brother broke his leg when he was two years old. Oh, no. And oh, my God. Dropped, terrible. Had, had dropped a coin. I don't remember if it was a dime or a quarter or a penny, but he had dropped it down in his cast. 
And when they took the cast off, he had an indentation in his, in <laughs> his leg. Of Thomas Jefferson. Oh, oh wow. my goodness. Yes, wow. that's, that's a two-year-old for you. Crazy, baby. Uh, they use oscillating saws today to use casts, uh, but they require the availability of electricity. If you don't have those, uh, if you're not going to have electricity, which if you're the survival guy, you're probably not going to be counting on that. There are still heavy-duty shears that are available for the purpose, although you need some elbow grease to really perform the removal of a cast with those, I have mm -hmm. to admit. Uh, so to review your goal, immobilize a fracture in a position of function that's different for the limb. For an arm, it is a 90 degree, at a 90-degree bend at the elbow. For the hand, is, it's as if you were holding a glass of water. For a leg, it's uh, straight with a slight bend at the knee. So those are some some of the particular positions that you would want to have the um, injured limb in. Um, use padding under the splint and ca or, or cast, and you want to use as much as possible to keep the injured area stable but protected. And use more casting material over the bony prominences, the bone uh, of the ankles and wrists and things like that. Most fractures require, I would say, about six to eight weeks to form what we call a callus. And this is newly formed tissue that's going to reunite the broken ends of the bone and forms actual bone cells. Larger bones are, or more complicated injuries, obviously, are going to take a lot longer. Uh, if you have a fracture that you don't reduce, remember that the function of the affected extremity is going to be permanently compromised. And so this is a, a big issue. Now, the effects... I want to talk a little bit about non-trauma effects of these kinds of disasters, things like earthquakes. And traumatic injuries, of course, are the most concerning because of their scary appearance and, and of course, the sudden nature of their occurring. Well, I mean, more people are actually going to be afflicted in a disaster from the loss of the infrastructure, maybe flooding that causes water treatment facilities to be compromised. And casualties due to contaminated drinking water, wow, well, they're experiencing all sorts of crazy diseases, diarrheal-type diseases, things that cause nausea and vomiting, fever, dehydration. As a matter of fact, dehydration is what probably will cause more deaths than maybe the trauma itself in these kinds of disasters. So you have to remember that any water source that has not been disinfected or any food that hasn't been properly cleaned or cooked will be an opportunity for disease-causing organisms to cause some kind of major illness. To sterilize water, if you're starting with cloudy water, it may be because there's a lot of small particles in it. A filter is going to be very useful. There are lots of great ones on the market. We have uh, in our store at store.doomandbloom.net, the Mini Sawyer, the Life Straw. These are simple to use, very lightweight, advertised, the ability to eliminate more than 99.99 something of most percent of most disease-causing microbes. Uh, you can also improvise your own filter by using a two-liter plastic bottle uh, or a length of uh, a length of uh, four-inch uh, wide, maybe PVC pipe. You want three layers of sand, gravel, maybe activated charcoal, uh, with each layer separated by pieces of cloth or cotton. Uh, once they're assembled and primed, you know that you run some water through it. You can run cloudy water through it and see clean water coming out the other side many times. So that is very useful. So this type of filter, uh, with or without charcoal, will get rid of particulate matter, but doesn't guarantee the destruction of bacteria. And so there has to be several ways that you can disinfect your water, purify it to get rid of organisms. One of them is boiling. Use a heat source to get 
your water to a roiling boil for probably about uh, at least a few minutes. Uh, some people say one minute, some people say five, I've even seen people say ten. There are indeed bacteria that can survive high heat, but they are in the minority. <clears throat> of course, chlorine bleach has an excellent track record of eliminating bacteria. About uh, 12 to 16 drops in a gallon of water usually does the trick. Uh, if you're used to drinking city-treated water, you probably won't even notice any difference in taste. Uh, also, they use a 2% tincture of iodine. Iodine, About 12 to 16 drops per gallon of water would be an effective uh, way to disinfect uh, the water. And ultraviolet radiation. Sunlight will kill um, bacteria if you put it out in about for about eight to hours or so of direct sunlight that is very important uh, fill your clear bottle of water maybe take out a little bit maybe 80 percent 90 percent full shake vigorously for about 20 se seconds that releases some oxygen from, from the water molecules and it will help the process along maybe even improve the taste so anyhow this is something that is really important to do, but we are out of time. I actually have a lot more to talk about today. <laughs> I'm going we'll to mention one quick thing. Time. I don't usually mention a lot of other stores, but I want to mention K10, that's one zero, medical supply. I found they're uh, got an enormous supply of casting materials, all at a reasonable cost, except for the blade, the saw, which is $1,000. <laughs> wow. Well, that's all we have for today. Well, we hope you enjoyed our show. We'll be back next week. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.